Well, hello and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, the editor-in-chief of iFormerX and the host of the iFormerX podcast. Many of our listeners care for patients with type 1 diabetes, and even if management of insulin therapy is not a big part of your practice, you are very likely to have patients in your practice who use a continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion device, or more commonly called an insulin pump. Over the past two decades, these devices have become progressively smaller and smarter, but still requires significant user input to make adjustments to insulin doses based on blood glucose monitoring data. Thus, patients still must be actively engaged, and as any patient will tell you, an insulin pump requires a lot of work. For many years, insulin pump manufacturers have aggressively pursued the development of a closed-loop system, a pump that would automatically make adjustments based on continuous glucose monitoring data thus freeing patients from making these adjustments. Not only would a closed-loop system be more convenient, particularly in younger patients who may not have the cognitive capacity to make these dose adjustments, but they might be safer because the system would make dose changes while the patient is sleeping or engaged in physical activity. At least that's been the hope. This area of practice has rapidly evolved over the last two years, and frankly, I've been out of the loop, pun intended, So when I saw the IDCL trial results recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, I knew we needed to review this research manuscript on iFormerX. So I'm delighted to welcome Diana Isaacs and Dr. Mary Culp as our guests today. Dr. Isaacs is a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Cleveland Clinic and works closely with an interprofessional team that provides care to some of the most complicated patients referred to their diabetes clinic. And Dr. Culp is a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident at Western Medicine Family Physicians in Enon, Ohio. And if you're a longtime member of iFormerX, you'll probably know Dr. Isaacs, who's contributed to iFormerX in many ways over the years and was one of our guest panelists a year ago for a discussion about continuous glucose monitoring. So it's great to have you back, Diana. And Mary, I'm so pleased to welcome you here as our first-time contributor. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here today. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to work with both you and Diana throughout this process. So before we talk about the IDCL study uh, that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary, I'd like to pick your brains on how you'd manage a patient case. I'd like you to imagine you've been asked to see LM, who is a 15-year-old African-American female who has type 1 diabetes for about the past eight years. The patient is from a rural community and has been managed by a local pediatrician who has a strong interest in type 1 diabetes and feels pretty comfortable managing patients who use an insulin pump. However, uh, LM's glycemic control has been pretty erratic over the past year, and despite the pediatrician's efforts to engage LM in actively managing her insulin therapy, LM just wants to set it and forget it. Uh, The referral indicates that the patient's most recent A1C was 8.9%, and there's no history of diabetes complications. Uh, LM has not been hospitalized since her initial diagnosis when she presented with DKA eight years ago. However, there was an incident last year at school where emergency medical services were called because LM had a severe hypoglycemic event 
with loss of consciousness. Ellen weighs 114 pounds and is five foot eight inches tall. She uses a Minimed 630G insulin pump, and her current basal insulin rate is 0.65 units per hour from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., and then 0.5 units per hour from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And for her bolus doses, she's supposed to use this adjusted scale based on her insulin to carb ratio of one unit to every 16 grams of carbs and using a correction factor of one unit per 40 milligrams per deciliter of glucose above 120. However, the patient admits that she just gives herself five or six units before each meal and only measures her blood glucose when she's at home. So, Diana, I'm, I'm wondering what's going through your mind in a case like this. What additional information might you want to collect and assess during your encounter with this patient? And are there any additional treatment options you'd be considering at this point? Yeah, thanks. This is a really great case. So there's uh, a few things that are on my mind right now. So first, kind of looking at her insulin pump settings and her basal, I did some calculations and it looks like uh, for her basal rate, she's getting about 14.4 units per day. And if you you know, take into account her weight, that's about 0.28 units per kilogram as her basal. So that actually seems pretty appropriate. Sometimes uh, we, we see in the management of these patients that people just keep going up and up and up on the basals in an attempt to kind of compensate for the bolus. But it looks like her primary care provider has actually been doing a good job and that is an appropriate weight-based dosing. So I think the real problem is why is she not using her insulin pump kind of the way it's intended to really be able to help her with that those bolus calculations and the carbohydrate counting? So I did notice, you know, she is underweight. Uh, her BMI is 17. And so I definitely would want to inquire about kind of her relationship with food and insulin dosing. We do see in the adolescent population that disordered eating is more common. And uh, we see sometimes people purposely um, miss insulin doses and in, in fear of, of weight gain. And so I'm not saying that that's necessarily what's going on here, but those would be some of the issues I would want to further explore. I would really like to take a look at her uh, full insulin pump report to see how often she is bolusing and if she really is, you know, doing those boluses three times a day or if it's kind of less often than that. I'd like to know more about her monitoring. So the 630G does come with a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor that can go with that pump to actually suspend insulin. But it sounds like she might not be using that. And a lot of people have, you know, it, that sensor requires calibrations and is not the easiest to keep on. So those could certainly be potential barriers, but those would be things I'd want to explore with her. I'd want to find out how often she's monitoring because um, that data is really important to, you know, be able to give correction doses of insulin and really be able to kind of optimize the glycemic management, which based on her A1C sounds like it's really not optimized right now. And then based on kind of this discussion is where, you know, I may make referrals for, you know, maybe she needs a carbohydrate counting refresher, or maybe she knows how to perfectly count carbohydrates, but, you know, it's related more to this relationship with food and disordered eating. So I would really want to explore all of that and gain that information uh, before coming up with a treatment plan. 
So Mary, let's talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormRx commentary. The study is entitled A Randomized Trial of Closed-Loop Control in Children with Type 1 Diabetes, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in late August 2020. Can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and the results? Absolutely. This was a 16-week randomized control trial that took place in four pediatric diabetes centers in the United States. The purpose was to assess the efficacy and safety of the new tandem closed-loop system, which is T-SLIM 2X pump with control IQ. And the patients who were eligible for this trial were patients with type 1 diabetes between the ages of 6 and 13 years old. Once patients were selected, they were randomized to either go into the closed-loop group or the controlled group. Patients in the closed-loop group use the tandem closed-loop system with the Dexcom G6, which is the compatible continuous glucose monitoring, and patients in the control group were provided with the same Dexcom CGM device and could either use their personal pump or were provided with the T-SLIM X2 pump with basal IQ, which has a predictive low-glucose suspend feature. The primary outcome of the trial was to assess the difference in percent time that the patients were in target glucose range, which was a range of 70 to 180 milligrams per deciliter based on the patient's continuous glucose monitoring data. The trial also assessed several secondary outcomes, such as time spent above or below the target glucose range, mean glucose level, and change in A1C at conclusion of the trial from baseline. The trial found a statistically significant increase in the percent of time in target range for the closed-loop pump compared to the control. The patients using the closed-loop system spent approximately 67% of time in range after 16 weeks, while the control group spent 55% of time in range at 16 weeks. This equated to the closed-loop group spending around 11% more time in range on average than the control group. The study also found that the closed-loop group spent significantly less time above target range and had significantly lower average blood glucose compared to the control group. So Mary, the results of this study are certainly promising as patients who were assigned to the closed loop system were in range, a significantly greater percentage of time. And the A1C improved slightly more in those who use the closed loop system. But I think many patients and parents would be very concerned about safety issues. And in that regard, I'm not sure the closed system was better than more traditional insulin delivery methods used by the control group in this study. What do you perceive as the key strengths and weaknesses of this study? Do you think the results can be generalized to adolescents or or very young children under the age of six? Yeah, so the key strengths, I think, of this study is that the group was generally well-matched between the controlled and the closed-loop system, and nearly 100% of the patients enrolled in the trial were retained throughout the trial, which says something in general just about the safety of the devices. I appreciate that the control group was managed with their own insulin pumps or were provided a pump because I feel this gives a better real-life benefit of the closed-loop system, but speaking to the safety concerns. While there were 16 adverse events reported in 15 of the patients in the closed loop group and only three in the reported events of the control group, there were no serious adverse events of severe hypoglycemia or diabetic ketoacidosis in either group. And interestingly, the adverse events reported in the closed loop were primarily due to 
hyperglycemia caused by insulin pump infusion set failure, which patients using the provided pump of the Tandem 2 with basal IQ have the same infusion set. So it's interesting that there are more results, but the infusion sets are likely very similar across the group. So I'd say those pieces of safety would be comparable between different pumps. Additionally, we found that while most patients in the control group were using pumps with the predictive low glucose suspend, which has previously been demonstrated to help reduce hypoglycemia, and this is likely why there wasn't a significant difference in changes of hypoglycemia between groups, but it is representative of the clinical decision we're making today is whether this new technology truly helps reduce hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia. So the closed loop really provides the most benefit in reducing hyperglycemia as we already have pumps able to reduce hypoglycemia. The main weakness of this trial, I'd say despite the broad eligibility criteria, the population doesn't truly represent the general population. The sample population has less baseline hypoglycemia and less incidence of diabetic ketoacidosis than the general population. And the sample population is also skewed towards patients of higher socioeconomic status and education level. And also over 70% of the patients in this group were between 10 to 14 years old, while the study was supposed to include patients all the way down to six years of age. So I'd say especially generalizing above the parameters of this age group, there are studies that have supported an FDA approval in older patients. However, generalizing to younger age groups would be difficult, especially considering that this trial didn't really evaluate many patients younger than 10 years old. So I won't definitely wouldn't be generalizing down to lower than six years of age. And as you saw with our case before, I'd say that not every candidate approved age group is a good candidate for pump therapy. So Diana, there have been lots of technology uh, advances with insulin pump therapy and continuous glucose monitoring the past few years. What are some of the most attractive features of these new systems that are really resonating with patients? And have these features made a difference in glycemic control or for patient safety? Oh, you've got me all excited talking about the new technology. So yeah, I mean, it's been incredible. So uh, I have a lot of patients that are currently on this system, the Control IQ, and it has really done wonders in terms of its ability to auto-adjust that insulin. Um, instead of having set rates you know, at different hours of the day with a traditional insulin pump, we know that on any given day, a person's insulin requirements can go up or down depending on other factors like how active they were, or how much stress they have going on. And so to have a dynamic system where you have an insulin pump that's communicating with a CGM to increase or decrease to reach specific glycemic targets is incredible. And what's really evolved over time is, you know, in, a, in the beginning, we just had kind of, it could suspend insulin if it would go low or if it would be predicted to go low. And that's really what the basal IQ, what the comparator group, many of the people were using. But now, in addition to that, we have the ability to actually um, be able to increase or decrease that background insulin. And then what is particularly new is this ability to give correction doses. So with this particular system, every hour, if glucose is above target, it actually gives an additional correction dose. So all of these have really helped my patients to be able to achieve time and range. Now, some things though, are that no system has completely replaced bolus dosing. So with all of our current hybrid closed loop systems, 
people still have to bolus when they are eating meals, when they are eating snacks. Now, this is an area that's also evolving. Uh, we're actually doing a clinical trial right now with Beta Bionics Islet, and that is a pump where instead of doing exact carb counting, you do meal announcements, and you can say you're eating a small, medium, large meal. So the goal with this technology is really to make the life easier for a person with diabetes. And it's incredible where it's going. We are not completely at an artificial pancreas yet, um, but we are getting closer and closer and closer. So Diana, your enthusiasm is palpable, but I want to return to the case. So recall that LM has not been actively managing her insulin therapy and her glycemic control isn't ideal. Would you recommend a closed loop system in this case? If yes, what are some of the key uh, keys to success when using a closed loop system? And if you're not convinced that she's this would be the best option in this case, what are some of the reasons why you'd be hesitant? So what I would say is not yet. I'm not rec- I'm not yet ready to recommend a closed loop system, but maybe in the future. I think we have to resolve some of the underlying issues. I need to know more about her reasoning for um, doing these set doses and how often she's really giving herself the boluses and the monitoring. So my first intervention for her, which she's going to need anyway if she's going to go onto one of these hybrid closed loop systems, is getting her to consistently use CGM and monitor her glucose levels. And I think we need to, you know, I'd need to make the recommended referrals, whether that goes back to carbohydrate counting or to see a psychologist, because with our current systems, carbohydrate counting is still important. And the other piece to it is that not just carbohydrate counting, but taking the bolus at the right time, you still have to bolus before the meal to really optimize the management. Um, that being said, you know, even people that don't, you know, do everything perfectly, I've seen these systems really be able to help them just through those automatic correction doses. But we just need, we need to know a little bit more. I mean, what if she's just burned out from her diabetes and she doesn't even want to wear a device right now? So we need to allow her to express that. And if she doesn't want to wear a device, that's okay. We can look at smart pens. We could just have her do a CGM and multiple daily injections. But I really want to individualize it. And so I would want to have that more information before um, really recommending the closed loop. Mary, Diana, I want to thank you both for joining me today to discuss the closed loop insulin delivery system and the management of type 1 diabetes. I think this technology has been tremendous for patients and providers and help people get to goal. We still don't have a a true closed loop system yet, but these hybrid systems have really made a big difference for patients. And it's really exciting to see where this technology is going. But I, I want to ask you all what you think is a closed loop insulin delivery, the panacea we'd hoped. Do you think closed loop systems are ready for prime time in a wide range of patient populations? Well, if you're an iFormerX member, you can leave a comment or two and use the interactive features on the site. If you want to become a member of iFormerX, please do. It's free, so please sign up today.
And for those of you who are board certified in ambulatory care pharmacy practice, I hope you'll check out the board prep and recertification program offered by the American Pharmacists Association. We've partnered with APHA to offer iFormerX content for board recertification, as well as continuing education credit. So click on the link posted below the commentary on the iFormerX website to learn more. And lastly, I want to extend a special thanks to Abby Klutz, who is a clinical pharmacy specialist at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Abby recently joined the iFormerX advisory board and provided very constructive peer review comments about the written commentary associated with this podcast. Moreover, Abby has been a star contributor over the past year and has recruited new members and authors. So thank you, Abby, for helping make iFormerX a vibrant community of practice. Well, Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief, signing off. 